Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Refashioning the Renaissance podcast. My name's Sophie Pittman, and I'm one of the postdocs on the Refashioning project. And I'm here with my fellow postdoc, Michelle. Hi, I'm Michelle Robinson. And we're joined today by two guests. Uh, Could you please introduce yourselves? Hello, I'm Flora Dennis. I'm head of art history at the University of Sussex. And my research is involved in domestic space, um, particularly sensory experience, sound and material culture. Hello, I'm Tessa Storey and I'm a researcher in social and cultural early modern history of Italy. And I've worked mostly on the history of medicine and um, material culture. And we're all here today following uh, a really exciting um, and exhausting two-day workshop uh, that was organized for us by Michelle. So perhaps, Michelle, we could start off by you describing what it is that we've been doing and some of the, the questions that we've been asking from, uh, from this process. Sure. So over the last two days, we've had our dirty laundry in early modern Italy and Denmark workshop. So we've had two days of remaking recipes from 16th and early 17th century pamphlets, these cheap sort of books that people could buy um, with all kinds of recipes for curing the plague or making some face cream or taking a stain out of your, your garment. So of course, because our project's interested in fashion, we want to look at the recipes about these stain removers Um, really simple dyes, and we also made some very nice um, potpourri out of rose petals. So we started off on the first day looking at um, the stain recipes, and we luckily went to New York a little while ago and were able to to dye some, some textiles, some wool and linen and silk with different types of red dye and some yellow as well that we brought back and felt really awful about splashing with ink and wine and oil. And we used those to try and get the stain or to those stained fabrics and then had three different recipes to try and get the stains out. And we left our, our stain removers to set and then we worked on some simple dyes. And can I ask, at this point, mm-hmm. how you selected the recipes, because mm-hmm. on this project we're interested in popular fashion, so the kinds of things that, that artisans uh, and the non-elite would have been able to um, maybe do at home and hopefully be able to, to afford and have the skills outside of a maybe more formal uh, guild or professional context. And so how did you, when you were selecting the recipes that we were going to reconstruct together, make the decisions that, that these were appropriate for our, our project. Sure, so especially the Italian recipes, which I know much better, Anna Cristina, who's our PhD student, works on the Danish context, and so she had given me some Danish recipes, and those were easy to choose because there aren't very many of them, to be honest. So um, for the Italian recipes, as I said at the beginning, they come from these very cheap, uh, short, small kind of pamphlets, so they're just maybe about eight pages long. The print quality is not very good. There's not a lot of instructions. So these were things that people who didn't have a lot of money could easily get hold of. And the ingredients in a lot of the recipes are really simple. So for example, Sophie, you and I used lemon juice to try and get stains out. Um, one of the other groups used uh, tartar powder to try and get stains out. And then from the Danish context, those other two examples were Italian. From the Danish book, we had um, using 
the juice of chanterelle mushrooms to try and get stains out. So um, these recipes really call for very simple ingredients that in the different contexts so would be inexpensive. So for example, in Italy, lemons were pretty easy to get, whereas in Denmark, you're gonna pay a lot of money for a lemon. So we could see some differences in the ingredients called for in books from different regions. So we were trying to be mindful of that too and and be inclusive while sort of narrowing down. And we also picked recipes that were quite simple in terms of the material or the materials and tools that you would need. Uh, so we used pots, uh, a mortar and pestle. We had a hammer to break up some of the oat gall that we used for one of the dye recipes um, and a heat source. So what the recipes demand is quite simple. We don't need distillation materials or anything like that. And that leads me on to a second logistical question, which uh, often plagues the, the budding um, re reconstructor of, of processes, which is sourcing materials. Because uh, at first glance, one might read a recipe and think, oh, chanterelle mushrooms or um, tartar powder or rose petals. Um, that seems easy to get hold of and, and presumably it would have been easy in the 16th century too. Um, but then uh, when when push comes to shove and, and we're actually faced with a workshop ahead, uh, it can be quite difficult to source these materials. Um, so could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, maybe one or two examples of things that you sourced and how you went about making the decisions of, of what to buy, how to get them, and maybe what difficulties you had to overcome in that process? Sure. So... It's actually such a huge challenge to try and, and get these things, not because it's really hard to find some of them. So we're really lucky that a lot of the materials, for example, for making this potpourri that we did, are still used today for, for perfuming. So they're kind of there, but we have to ask so many questions about, you know, is we need, for example, orris root. What is the quality of this ground orris root that I bought? Is it in any way comparable to the ground orris root that they were using in the past? Um, how much money do we want to spend on some of the materials as well because a lot of things are really expensive. So, for example, from the Danish book, we had uh, a recipe for dyeing with saffron and it called for what seemed to be quite a lot of saffron and it would cost a small fortune to do it. So thinking about how what we have today compares with what was being used in the past, but also we have a budget and we have sort of time limits um, and different seasons. So we had hope to do a recipe using soapwort, which is a plant that's used for making soaps and, and cleaning, even today, and it's not the right, the right time of year. So lots of different challenges in, in, in finding the different materials that we used for these recipes. So Flora and Tessa, I'm interested to hear from you in advance of this workshop what your expectations were. Well, I was really intrigued and really looking forward to it. Um, sort of making things, doing things with my hands is something I really enjoy doing outside of academic life. Um, and in terms of my research, I've been working more and more recently on particularly looking at food recipes in relation to material culture. So I was really looking forward to the idea of putting those different facets together um, and doing something that I'd never really you know, done before. And um, I'm the exact opposite, really. Um, I don't make anything except for cooking. <clears throat> I'm not a maker. I'm not that interested in making things at all. And I, I wasn't not looking forward to it. I was looking forward to it very much, but I didn't have any expectations and I couldn't imagine it. So um, I found that 
I found it very fruitful to be making things and thinking about the processes, uh, raised lots of questions about um, recipes which I've worked a lot with in theory only, um, and about how that worked in um, the early modern household. And would you say this has changed the way you think about your research after having a couple of days of, of making things and reading the recipes in a different way than Tessa you maybe have done in the past? It's added in some respects. For example, it's raised even more questions about publishing of recipe books. Um, to some extent, I now believe that the recipe book recipes were designed to be used and yet another part of me is still very sceptical as to how they were put together and whether people simply put anything in them just for the sake of the money they could make out of the publication but but in, in I'm still I'm I've got evidence on both sides now so I'm I'm it's still an intriguing question and it's raised questions about all the variety of recipes that you find and why there are so many it never occurred to me how specific it would be that if you were going to dye this or perfume that it would alter the quality of the textile or it would have such an impact. I, I used to wonder why you needed 25 recipes for something that seemed to me to be the same thing. So that's very valuable. So for me, I think I always believed in, in theory that I could see the, absolutely the value um, of practice, but I haven't experienced it fully for myself. And you know, someone who's interested in sort of sensory experience and embodied experience of, of domestic space in particular, one of the things that I think most surprised me was how quickly I felt over a day and a half we were individually and collectively building up a sense of, you know, how we were engaging with the objects and the materials that we were that we were working on. Um, so one example um, was looking at a recipe where I knew I had to keep a, a, a certain kind of temperature, which is below the boil. And to begin with, I was using my thermometer and checking it, you know, every kind of minute or two. And then gradually I grew to recognise what that temperature looked like, um, you know, how that related to the kind of movement of the liquid and the things suspended in the liquid. So I built up a confidence very quickly that I think allowed me to start to understand the kinds of, you know, knowledge and the kinds of sensory experiences that people would have brought to those texts. So, I mean, understanding really how the text on the page really is just a tiny element of, of a, a far wider um, way in which these processes would have been experienced and understood. Another thought I've had about uh, how it's affected my understanding of uh, not so much of recipes but of hierarchies and spaces are two different things thinking a lot about it's made me think about the high social hierarchies implicit in all of these recipes and um, how much more we can discover about the economics and, and how it looked to be dressed in something that you died at home rather than had died in a, um, a workshop for example um, but it's also made me think about um, Something which overlaps with my work is the circulation of these goods through the city. So it's, it's nice to see questions I've been raising in my research are really questions very pertinent to this, how you get the rose petals is the question that we focused on and where they came from and who sourced them and how you pick them and who all the different people in this chain of um, knowledge or, or matter and materiality, who they all are. And building on that, I mean, we were all sorts of ways in which we were thinking about these connections between and across 
different spaces. So in some cases, we had materials that were being imported from, from places that were distant. So we were thinking about you know, those kinds of resonances, but also just reading some of the recipes, that, um, thinking about how, where the activities, the kind of focal activities, which are usually around you know, a hearth or a fire, a heat, source of heat, how that space within the home might then relate to other spaces. So for example, when we were looking at dried rose petals, you know, how they need to be somewhere in the shade, but with air moving through them. So implied within those recipes are kind of other spaces that allow you to start to map those activities across the domestic sphere. So in reading the recipes, we've sort of been thinking about what else is implied. And also something we, we talked about a lot during the workshop are things like assumptions that, that we've made or assumptions that the recipes seem to have of us, of the knowledge that we have. Could you say a little bit about some of the assumptions you were making and how you sort of thought about those and went with those or felt challenged throughout the workshop? So in some cases, it was really interesting coming up against that where if we're working in pairs, for instance, we had a liquid, we strained the liquid, one of us would assume it was the residue that we needed to be working with for the next stage, and the other would assume it was the liquid. And in some cases, it really wasn't clear. So, you know, seeing how that was then used as a basis for experimentation was, was really interesting. I think one of the things that we found um, making was that we didn't know really what we were aiming for. And so mm-hmm. implicitly, if you had been making a certain dye or... Um, rose-scented petals, you would actually have known what smell you wanted to attain or known what colour you were looking for. We didn't have that historical context to work in. And we also don't know to what extent we've succeeded because we don't know what the aim was uh, in in the early modern context. So, And there were some cases where, you know, thinking about the materiality of the objects would, that would have been used to make um, the dyes and the stain removers we were working with, we were in a kind of lab context with a hot plate um, with sort of large stainless steel pots and very often we found that things were, you know, were reducing and evaporating much too quickly. So, I mean, immediately thinking about, well, what, what sorts of vessels might have been used? You can see how in terms of trying to have an, a practice that's historically informed at each level, you can, you know, push it a bit further and a bit further and a bit further. <laughs> so that, that's been something that I, you know, I want to reflect more on definitely. So I'd like to to build on those two final points that that you each made um, to ask about having now done this process once um, and thinking about you know what what does success even look like in in this in this context given the compromises we made and given our actual lack of lack of knowledge about the historical context of of what these things might have actually been supposed to smell like or, or look like. Um, I suppose my que- my next question for you would be, if you were to do this again, what would you do differently, um, or would you like to do it again, or do you think once once was enough? Um, I think that actually that the idea of repetition is really important. That um, one thing I have learned is that it really has been about the process of the doing rather than the outcome. I mean, we have had some quite. Um, unexpected or not quite as expected outcomes but I I really feel that continually I was questioning what I was doing and then making notes that made me think well if I do this again I would try this or I would try that I mean the variables um, are so so many so um, I think 
also given the rapidity with which I felt we were developing some kind of familiarity with both processes and materials, the idea of repetition would be really interesting because we would be able to steer those outcomes, whether or not those are historically accurate outcomes, that, that we'd have some sense of sort of agency over that process, which in this first time as a complete sort of novice, I really didn't feel like I had at all. Now, I would have a completely different view is I would not particularly be interested in doing it again because I've got questions I now want to answer through texts. So it makes all the questions I have are, where can I find something that will give me a picture into people, what they were doing in their house? Where could I figure out a way to source information about who would have been there when they were dying or whether it was the mother or the father or the friend? So to me, it makes me want to go back to the archive um, and try and find answers to all these questions that we can't actually answer in a modern context. And I think one, one further point, the conversations we had in the room were so rich, but they also had the potential to go out in so many different directions. So when we were talking about roses, you know, where were roses grown, what kinds of roses, when would they flower, how... So thinking about how input... A kind of interdisciplinarity of conversation with food historians and garden historians, I think as well as going off and looking at documents and texts, I really felt the need for, for bigger conversations that were involving expertise in those other fields as well, which would really enrich understanding. I really feel like I had a combination of your responses, Tessa and Flora, in that I really would like to try the experiments again because like you Flora I had a lot of things that I would do differently and we really learned a lot I felt I learned a lot just doing the recipe one time and I would be much better able to to sort of know what I'm doing and feel more confident and try it again and do different different sort of make different choices but I also had a lot of questions come up and the things about roses or other kinds of materials where did people get these things that we can't find from, from recipe books or, or that kind of thing. So really wanting to get in and find out, find out more about the questions that came up. So I think all of us have come away from this workshop maybe with a lot more questions and really with new perspectives on, on our work and on the project. Well, that's really exciting to hear. Even if we all take away different uh, ideas and questions from this um, it's, it's really great to hear that, that reconstruction and um, following these processes and making and, and chatting and, and thinking while we make can be so generative and, and such an interesting and compelling way of doing history and, and studying our sources. And on that note, I think it's time for us either to return to the lab or the kitchen or, or get back to the archive. So thanks very much for talking to us. And uh, I hope you tune in next time for the next Refashioning the Renaissance podcast.